Uh, like I mentioned earlier, though, uh, my name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here, uh, and I'm grateful just to get to join you for worship this morning for Paige's baptism as well. We're going to open God's Word together and study that together. And, and, uh, and so uh, if you're new or visiting, I just want to say welcome, glad to have you. Hopefully this is a great Sunday for you to be here because we're going to talk a lot about Jesus like we do every week. Uh, and uh, when you talk about him, it's always good. So uh, excited as well to keep studying, uh, continue our series this summer. We're working on a series walking through the attributes of God. And what we've talked about is how an, an attribute, it refers to a quality or a characteristic that belongs to someone that, that, that characterizes them. And God's attributes we see in Scripture, they define and describe who He is. And, and in other words, what they, they do is they tell us who He is and what He is like. And what we said from the beginning, I think, is that it can be really easy to approach an, a, a topic like the attributes of God and think like, well, that's just a really great thing for pastors and professors to spend a lot of time thinking about, but I have no idea how that impacts my life in any real or meaningful way. But what I hope you've seen throughout our series is that thinking rightly about who God is and what he's like has deeply practical implications for our everyday lives. It's not just some theoretical idea. It has deep Deep in, uh, practical applications in our lives. Because the truth is, is that what you believe, it always determines what you do. What you believe always determines what you do. Our, our actions, our behaviors, they're the tangible expressions of our belief, the things, that, the things that we believe are true. And so when our actions and attitudes and perspectives are out of line with God and his word and his will, then uh, on a fundamental level, what that is a result of is that we either don't know, we've forgotten, or we're refusing to believe something that's true about God. And so beholding and believing the truth about him, that's where, like, that's where it all begins begins if we want to think about becoming the people that he's made us to be. And, and last week we saw how the thing that the Bible emphasizes more than anything else about God is that he is holy, that he is uh, transcendently pure and morally uh, perfect, that he's completely and utterly without sin. He always does what is right. He, he, in fact, he can do no wrong, and let alone tolerate it in his presence. He's, he's not just absolutely good. He is the very source and standard and definition of goodness in and of itself. We saw how the reason why God's holiness is such a big emphasis in the Bible is because God's holiness is not just an aspect of who he is. It's who he is at the very core. And all the other attributes of his character, they're, uh, they're intrinsically intertwined with his holiness. And that's what we're going to see this morning as we take a look at God's next attribute, his justice. Now, I don't know about you, but we tend to be quick to affirm God's attributes of love and mercy and forgiveness and grace, those kinds of things, but we shy away from the idea of a God who determines what is just and who meets out justice as he sees fit. It often makes us uneasy. We're not sure quite what to do that with it. Oftentimes, it feels like his justice can feel inconsistent with his other attributes in some way. And yet over and over in the Bible, what we see is that the writers of Scripture declare that the justice of God is something to be heralded and praised and lifted up and valued, not something to be shied away from or, or hidden or concealed. And so what I want to show you this morning as we study God's Word is that God's justice isn't just consistent with all his other attributes, but that it's actually good news 
And how if we'll behold and believe in a God who judges justly and who executes justice perfectly, that we'll be able to become the just people that he's made us to be as his image bearers. So I can't wait to show you that this morning. And so with that in mind, let's pray and then we'll dive into our time together in God's word. God, thanks so much uh, for gathering us together today to rejoice in you and the transforming work you do and people like Paige and, and the rest of us as well. And God, as well as we come to study your word, we uh, want to come humbly to it. Uh, God, we, uh, we, we live in a world that seeks to uh, be our own authors of truth and to be the ones who set the standards for what is right and true and good and who are the ones who decide what justice is and looks like. But God, the, the truth of your word says that that's not true of us, that you are the just judge. And so we ask God as we come to you this morning that you might graciously give us humble hearts so that we might hear from your word where we need to be comforted by it, comfort us, where we need to be corrected, correct us, God. But, but cause us to look more like Jesus and to have his heart and to care about the world and, 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 and your heart in the way that you do. And so for any of that to happen, God, we need you. And so we pray by your spirit, God, for our good and for your glory that you would change us this morning, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, like I said in the beginning, uh, over and over in Scripture, the writers of the Bible, they herald God as a God who is utterly just. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 3 and 4, uh, Moses, he says, I'll proclaim the name of the Lord, the praises of the greatness of our God. He is the rock. His works are perfect all his ways are just, a faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. Psalm 89, 14 says it this way, righteousness and justice, they're the foundation of your throne. Job 34, verse 12 says it this way, it's unthinkable that God would do wrong, that the Almighty would pervert justice. God says the same about himself numerous times throughout Scripture. In Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 24, he says, I am the Lord who exercises kindness and justice and righteousness on earth, for in these things I delight. Isaiah 61, verse 8, for I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. See, God's justice is an outworking of his holiness. His, his, he, as a holy God, he sets the standard for what is right and wrong, for what is good and what is evil. And because God is holy, because he is entirely, utterly pure and good, he isn't neutral towards sin and evil. In fact, he's not neutral towards sin or evil, whether it's done to us or whether it's done by us. He stands utterly opposed to it. When you survey the Bible, what you find is that God's justice, his opposition towards evil and his upholding of what is right and true and good, what you find is that it takes two main forms. And the first that you see in Scripture is that it lifts up the righteous and the oppressed. God's justice is characterized by lifting up the righteous and the oppressed. Throughout the Bible, God's continued proclaiming that he's a God who defends the defenseless, who cares for the oppressed, who vindicates the righteous. Psalm 103, verse 6 says it this way, For the Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. Psalm 146, verses 7 through 9, he says, He upholds the cause. That, that phrase, upholds the cause, that's the same word that's translated justice a bunch of other places throughout Scripture. He upholds the cause of the oppressed, gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. 
He watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow, and he frustrates the ways of the wicked. You see, in our, in our own justice system, it's often people with money and power and influence who are able to make the system work in their favor. Similarly, when you look at the gods in the ancient world, what you see is that they're epitomized by exercising power on behalf of, of those who, who, of the people at the top, the elites. And yet what you see throughout Scripture is that the God of the Bible, he doesn't work for the people at the top. He says, I have all the power and I use it, I exercise it on behalf of the people at the bottom. People who don't have power, who don't have influence, who can't get justice for themselves. So the first way that God exercises justice is by lifting up, by affirming, by upholding those who are oppressed and those who are righteous. But the second way we see God's exercising his justice is by punishing evil and wrongdoing. In Exodus chapter 34, when God's revealing himself to Moses, he, he describes himself to Moses. He says he's a compassionate, gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to a thousands of generations, uh, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. And it goes on, he says, yet not leaving the guilty unpunished. Romans chapter 1 verse 18 reminds us that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of people. See, a lot of people think that a God who is just and a God who is loving are these dichotic ideas, that they don't go together, that somehow a God who is justly judges and a God who loves, they can't be the same thing. But that's just a lie. You see, the, the reality is, 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 that, is that the truth is that God who, a God who doesn't judge and punish sin is neither loving or just. If I told my wife that I loved her and yet I didn't do anything when she was harmed or when she was, uh, when she was, uh, was wronged, that would not be love. That's called indifference, and indifference is just the final form that hate takes. See, because God is holy and loving, he stands relentlessly, relentlessly opposed to sin and evil. And his judgment, his just judgment of sin, is not at odds with his love. It is, in fact, an outpouring of his holiness and his love for us. You see, and so God stands in his holiness, justly, relentlessly opposed to evil and sin, whether it's done by us or to us. Many, many commentators and, and Christians over the centuries have, have pointed out that you have to live a pretty comfortable life, one with no experience of any kind of injustice or wrong, to not want a God, to not need a God who doesn't want to punish sin. And so God's just judgment of and punishment for sin and evil is something, is something that is, is invariably true. It's one of the ways he does it. But what I want to show you too this morning is that you can trust his just judgment of sin. You can trust it. See, all of us, we have, we have a sense of justice, and most of the time we think we know the whole story, right? Most of the time we think we know what it looks like for justice to be made out. We think we have the truth about what is right and what really happened and all those kinds of things. We think we know what justice looks like. But the truth is, is that oftentimes we have wrong or incomplete information. Even with good intentions, we get justice wrong, but God never gets it wrong. God's judgments are always just and right. 
And they're right because, like we saw in earlier in our series, God is both omniscient and omnipresent. He knows everything there is to know inside and out. And he is present everywhere as a witness to all things perfectly. He never forgets anything. He sees all. Hebrews chapter 4.13 says it this way, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Jen Wilkin, in her book, in, her book, in His Image, she sums it up this way so helpfully. She writes, In an earthly courtroom, cases are heard by a judge and a jury with limited ability to discern truth from lies. Eyewitness reports report what they saw with limited ability to recall what actually transpired. Bias and corruption may enter into the process. Sometimes witnesses perjure themselves. Sometimes the wrong person is convicted. Justice is not always served. But God is a judge who possesses every fact of every case. He knows exactly who did what to whom, on what day, in which location, and for what purposes. He knows not only the external facts of the case, but the internal motives of all involved. He is not only the judge, he is the eyewitness who testifies to the facts, perfectly clear-sighted in all his recollections. So what Jen is writing about and what the scriptures remind us of and herald to us is that God never gets it wrong. He never gets it wrong. The innocent are never convicted. The guilty are never found innocent. His judgments are always correct. Always. But it's not just that God's judgments are always correct, but that his punishments are always fair and just. Deuteronomy chapter 10 verse 17 says it this way, for the Lord your God is the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the great and mighty and awesome. He shows no partiality. He accepts no bribes. See, his punishments are never swayed by his personal feelings or some unknown bias or by a wealthy benefactor on behalf of the guilty party. God's punishments are always equal. And he doesn't demand more than what is just. As humans, you and I, we're, we, we tend towards retribution and, and vengeance. We want, people, we want to make people pay for the wrong that they've done to us or to others. And yet God's punishments always fit the crime. One commentator puts it this way, he is incapable of over-punishing and he is incapable of under-punishing. His justice leaves no room for cruelty or vindictiveness. So you can trust that God is a just judge because his judgments are always correct and his punishments are always fair and right. And even, though we can, even though we can be confident that that is true, the reality is that we often have a hard time. We often have a hard time believing that a God who, in a God who is just because we don't always see justice served. Right? We live in a world where there is all kinds of ache and hurt and justice often goes unfulfilled. The psalmist and the prophets there, that was nothing new to them. They cry out to God often about unfulfilled justice, asking God why the wicked seem to prosper and why those who are innocent seem to go to their graves unvindicated. And the reason why you and I don't see justice served is not because God is unjust or because he is just just part of the time, but because God's justice takes place on an eternal timeline, not our temporal ones. Psalm 9, verses 7 and 8 says it this way, The Lord reigns forever. 
He's established his throne for judgment. He rules the world in righteousness and judges the peoples with equity. One writer, I think, so helpfully summed it up this way. He said, God's flawless justice requires that he punish all sin, but he does not always do so for us to see on a timeline that neatly resolves like an episode of Law and Order. One lifetime is not always enough to witness justice served. See, you and I, we live in a sense where all we can see seems to be all there is. But God lives outside of time. And that doesn't mean that he's unjust or that he will not bring about justice, but it means it happens on his time as he sees fit. And the good news is for you is that that's actually good. In the New Testament, we, we read that God's, God's, God's long-awaited justice is good news because if he came in justice now, there are many who would receive the punishment for their, for their just rewards. You see, we don't always see God's justice served, but we can be confident that in the end, he will execute absolute justice. Nothing is hidden from his sight. He is an impartial judge. No one is getting away with anything. The reality is, is that when we behold and believe in a God who is characterized by that kind of justice, it impacts us in some really profound ways. And the first, I think, is that, that it, it deeply comforts us. Right? When you look at the world, you see a lot of pain and corruption and wickedness, and it feels like people just get away with it, whether it's big things like sex trafficking or racial injustice or smaller things like scammers extorting the elderly. Right? We see those kinds of things, and we ache for justice. We, we long for those things to be righted, those wrongs to be set right, right. We want accountability. We want justice. But the truth is, is that our ability to bring about justice is wildly limited. We are frail and fallen and finite, but God is not. He is not limited. He is not powerless. And in the end, he will judge justly and perfectly. No injustice that you suffer, no injustice that you witness will go unseen or unrepaid. No one is getting away with anything. And for those of you who are in the midst of a season where you have suffered deep injustice, that is good news. Even though it feels like you don't get it now, you might never see it in this world. The great king and creator of the universe will bring about justice, not because he's just promised to, but because it is at the very core of who he is. He cannot help but bring it about. And when you behold and believe in a God who will invariably execute justice on your behalf, that frees you up in ways that nothing else can. It frees you up to be a person that's characterized by forgiveness and mercy instead of a longing for retribution and vengeance. Peter tells us that's what Jesus himself did. He entrusted himself in the midst of the cross. He entrusted himself to a God who judges justly. And that doesn't mean that we shouldn't value or pursue justice, but it does mean that we don't have to take it into our own hands and we don't have to get it on our timetables. The burden of carrying out judgment and making the world just, it doesn't ultimately fall on you. It falls to God and he is absolutely going to do it. 
You see, but beholding and believing in a God who is perfectly just, it doesn't only comfort us, it also calls us to be characterized by the kind of justice that, that he himself is characterized by. Second Chronicles chapter 19, uh, God speaking to his people, he says, Now let the fear of the Lord, let a reverence for God, let a worship of him, says, let that be on you so that you might judge carefully. For with the Lord our God there is no injustice, no partiality, no bribery. Micah chapter 6, verse 8. He has shown you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with our God. Isaiah chapter 1, verse, six, verse 16 and 17. God says to his people, take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right and to seek justice. I think Jeremiah chapter 22, 3, it sums up best what God's talking about when he tells us to act justly and to seek justice. It says it this way, this is what the Lord says, to do what is just and right. Rescue from the hand of the oppressor, the one who has been robbed. Do no wrong or violence to the foreigner, the fatherless or the widow. Don't shed innocent blood. Did you notice in that passage there's these two sides of the same coin that is, that is reflecting and seeking the justice of God? The, on the one hand, acting justly looks like, not, looks like not practicing injustice ourselves, right? He says, don't do wrong. Don't mistreat the foreigner and the fatherless and the widow. See, not treating people with bias and partiality and contempt, whether that's because of their race or their ethnicity or their economic status or their family situation or whatever it is. That's what it looks like to be a people partially that are characterized by reflecting the justice of God. And yet on the other hand, what you see is that, is, is that it looks like actively imitating God in the way that he pursues justice for those who have been wronged and oppressed. He says, rescue from the hand of the oppressor, the one who has been robbed. I don't know about you, but this week I was really confronted with the reality that my tendency when I think about justice is often to want to look away, to kind of disengage or to merely pray for justice to be done in our world. And yet what you see throughout the scriptures is that that's not how God works. God calls his people to have his heart for all those who are made in his image and to seek justice, to defend those who are hurting and oppressed. See, if we're going to become a people that are just, as God made us and called us to be as his image bears, then it begins, I think, with repenting of our own willingness to ignore injustice. To turn a blind eye to it, to stand silently by it begins there, but I think it also continues on, right, by us learning to listen both to God's word and to those who are hurting so that we might know how to be a community that understands how to reflect the heart of God and to be characterized not just by thinking that justice is a good idea or even loving the idea of justice, but a people who seek it, who pursue it, who reflect a God who pursues it himself. So beholding and believing in a God who is just, it comforts us, it calls us, but lastly, and I think most importantly, it convicts us. See, the truth is, is that we are not just witnesses to or victims of injustice, we're perpetrators of it. Romans chapter 3 verse 10 reminds us that there is no one righteous, no one just, 
Not any of us, not even one. All of us are sinners who are under the just judgment of God. Even our desire for justice reveals how unjust we really are. Because one pastor said this, we were, we're all selective hypocrites. We want justice for others, but mercy for ourselves. We want the sin of others to be punished, but we don't want ours to be. We want a God of love for us and a God of justice and judgment for others. You see, but the reality is that that is not a God worth worshiping because justice that, that favors one person over another, that's not justice, that's called corruption. And a God who is corrupt is not a God worth worshiping. See, when we behold and believe in a perfectly just God, what happens is you will invariably come to terms with the reality that it's not just others for whom justice will be served, it's you as well. We are justly deserving of punishment for our sin. We're not just victims or witnesses, we are perpetrators. See, the problem is, is that instead of beholding and believing in a God who is just and seeking to reflect his just character in the way that we relate to one another, what happens is we reject the idea of a God who would judge us in the first place. Right? We, we set up our own standards for right and wrong and good and evil. Instead of letting God be the just judge, we take justice into our own hands. We dole it out as we see fit based on our own standards and our own regulations and our own desires and judgment. Instead of being characterized by forgiveness and mercy, we're characterized by keeping score of all the ways that we have been treated unjustly while conveniently forgetting all the ways that we have unjustly treated others minimizing our own sin and, and conveniently forgetting all of it. We live at this place where the justice of God stands as the truth and yet we refuse to re believe it. We live as though we are somehow altogether right and good where God's justice always falls on our side, never against us. And the only way that that's true is if you're God yourself. A God who is never at odds with you that's not a God, that's just a reflection of you. The truth is that the God who is utterly just reveals that you and I are not. So the question is, how do you move from unbelief and rebellion to belief and becoming? How do we go from running from the justice of God, minimizing it, ignoring it, how do we go from that to instead embracing it and reflecting it? How do you do that? Well, the only way that you can embrace the justice of God, both for yourself and for others, is that you have to see that although you are a perpetrator of sin and injustice yourself, the punishment that you deserved has already been paid by Jesus. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 says it this way, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. For God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement, propitiation for our sins, through the shedding of His blood to be received by faith. And He did this to demonstrate His righteousness, His justice, because in His forbearance He had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. And He did it to demonstrate His, his righteousness at the present time so that as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. See, what the Apostle Paul is saying in those verses is that because God is just, he has to punish sin. And if he doesn't, then he's not just at all. And if he's not just, then he's not good, and he's not holy, and all of it falls apart. 
God is just and has to punish sin and injustice. But what Paul says is instead of punishing you, he steps in to take your place. The most unjust act of all, the sinless Jesus took the place for us. And Jesus didn't come to bring the vengeance of God. He came to bear it. And when he came to the cross, he took the punishment that you and I deserve, the judgment for our sin. It comes down on him. He becomes our atoning sacrifice. He absorbs all of God's just wrath for our sin and rebellion, for the ways that we have rejected his justice and the ways that we have unjustly treated others. And when we confess our sins and we put our faith in Jesus, the Bible says that, that to take our place, then you can have an unshakable confidence that you've been made right with God, that you're forgiven, that you're free. Right? John chapter 1 and verse 9, John writes it this way. He says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us. It's so important that you see that God's forgiveness of our sins is not just his love poured out for us. It's his justice. You see, Jesus is not just our atoning sacrifice. He is our advocate before the Father. He, that means he stands like your defense attorney. He stands before the Father representing you. And he's not up there asking for forgiveness. He's not up there asking for mercy, pleading that God would be gracious. He's up there demanding that the Father be just. See, Christ stands before the Father, before the very justice of God, and he relentlessly and he continually, he says, Father, I know. They've done it again, but I have lived the life they should have lived, and I have died the death their sin deserved. And I am their advocate. They are lost in me. And so when you look at them, you must look at me. And it would be unjust of you, Father, to punish them when I have already received the punishment. See, the day that you understand that Jesus is not just your atoning sacrifice, but that he is your advocate before the Father, demanding before the Father that God be just as he is, that's the day you get to rest. That's the day you get to rest. Jen Wilkin, again, she writes it this way. She says, those who do not cast themselves on the perfect sacrifice of Christ will spend their lives attempting to make atonement by offering their own good works to a God of their own imagining. They'll seek to justify themselves by whatever means they can. They'll live lives of striving and futility. But for those in whom the image of God has been restored... The Holy Spirit works in conjunction with our consciences so that we would joyfully act justly for the purpose of bringing glory to God. You go from striving to joyfully giving yourself back. That's how the gospel transforms us. And so when you behold the reality of the perfect justice of God, and yet that Jesus died in your place for your sins, what happens is that you get sent out into the world with this really unique balance, right? That you, you'll deeply care about justice like much of our world seems to do. Because you'll see how much God cares about it, not because you'll have your own standards of it. And yet at the same time, you'll be someone who's characterized by full of, full of grace and humility because what you realize is that you are not just a witness to it. You're a perpetrator of it who has been forgiven and cleansed and made new yourself. And so you'll be someone who seeks to reflect the character of God and the justice of God, not out of pride and arrogance, but one out of humble joy. Realizing that you are the benefit, you are the benefactor, 
of God's gracious justice to you. See, and that's a part of what we're remembering and celebrating every week when we take communion together. Jesus' death on the cross in our place, it pays the penalty our sins deserved so that you and I might be forgiven and free, made right with God, justified before him. And communion, it doesn't make you right with God and it doesn't save you. The Bible's clear. Faith alone in the person and the work of Jesus. That's the one thing that makes you right with God. And going to church doesn't do it, and getting baptized doesn't do it, and giving your money doesn't do it. And no matter how many good things you do, it doesn't change your status and your standing before God. The one thing that does is to say, Jesus, will you take my place? By faith, you put your trust in him. Martin Luther called it the great exchange. We give God all our unrighteousness, and he takes and gives us all of his righteousness on the cross. You see, and so if you've trusted Jesus and believed the gospel, if you are relying on him to be the one who completely pays the penalty for your sin, then I want to encourage you, during our time of worship, go back and take communion. There's a table on the left and on the right, and you can dip the bread in the juice. You go back as you see fit. Do it as a joyful celebration, a reminder that the great God who is both just and the justifier can be those things because of the person and the work of Jesus on your behalf. You can be forgiven and made right and cleansed and made new because of him through faith. But if you're here today and you haven't yet placed your faith in Jesus, I just want you to know how welcome you are here and how welcome your questions are and your processes and your doubts are. I want you to know you are welcome here and in this community. But I want to encourage you, hold off on taking communion. God is not after religious rituals. He is not after going through the motions. What he wants is a heart that rests in him completely. You cannot justify yourself. You cannot do it. Endlessly before the justice and holiness of God, you stand on the wrong side of the bench. You can only be justified by faith in him. And when that reality clicks in your heart, what it produces in you is joy and a longing to obey and a longing to reflect the very justice of God. You start to look like him because you love him. So as we sing and as we worship and as we remember God together in song and the gospel together in song this morning, I want to encourage you, wherever you're at, talk with God. How does beholding and believing in God's justice need to change you this morning? See, some of you are here and you are riddled with a longing for retribution and vengeance. Often rightly so because you have been deeply wronged. But what's happening is that it is crippling. There is no life, there is no freedom, there is just more death down that road. And what you need is for the justice of God to comfort your soul. And you need the reminder that even if you do not get justice in this life, that the great just judge will execute justice perfectly in the end. And you can have an unshakable confidence that that is true because it is at the very core of who he is. He cannot be unjust. 
Some of you need it to comfort you. Others of you, you need it to convict you. You live in such a way where you have eyes to see the injustice all around you, but not the injustice done by you. The most unjust thing in all the world is that the God of the universe has made us and given us his word, and we have altogether rejected him. We have seen unfit to live for him and to do as he sees fit. We've enthroned ourselves as God, and that's the ultimate, that's the very reality of what sin is. And some of you, this morning, you need the reality of God's justice to convict you, because you're not just a witness to injustice, you're a perpetrator of it yourself. And so some of you need it to comfort, some of you need it to convict, but all of us, we need, a, we need to behold and believe in the justice of God so that we might be characterized by reflecting his justice to the world. See, he's this definition. He is the standard for what is good and right and true. He is the standard for what is good and evil, and he is the one who justly judges. And for us, the invitation is that we might agree with him about what is just. And then we might seek to live a way that is just, not as we define it, but as he does. By a people who lift up the oppressed, who seek and pursue justice, and who do not commit injustice ourselves, but who reflect the very heart of God. All of that, any of that, it's only possible because of Jesus. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. And for the reminder this morning that you are invariably just. You are altogether good and righteous. Your just judgments are always correct. Your punishments are always fair. In the end, you always uphold the righteous. God, we want to be a people who let you be the judge. And so to be a people who are free to forgive and a people who are free to make much of you and to show mercy even when it's not deserved because that's what we have received. Help us to give, help us to let you be the judge, to entrust it to you, but help us as well, God, to have a right sense of our need for forgiveness so that we might joyfully join you in seeking justice, in acting justly, that we might reflect the very character and life of Jesus who did it perfectly for us. We pray, amen.